Poetry Night rings through. Let's welcome Matthew up to the stage. Matthew Yasuoka. Lately, I've been thinking about names for my non-existent children. I've chosen the most ostentatious names this side of Northwest, and even hipsters cringe at how non-mainstream my names are while sipping PBR. I've made a list, and thank God I don't plan on reproducing, because lately, I've been thinking about names for my non-existent children. I'm gonna name her Harmony. That way from the moment she's born, she'll know that she's composed of George and Paul's voices spinning off the turntable of her mother's womb. I'm gonna name him Jesus. That way I can finally love Jesus for Christ's sake. He will never fear falling because on the third day he will always rise again. He will fill the holes in his hands with all the things I couldn't. Lately, I've been thinking about names for my non-existent children. I'm gonna name her Hermione. That way she knows that I'm a total dork, and it's okay to be a total dork, and she'll know that it's Leviosa, not Leviosa, and with a swish and flick of her fingertip, she'll levitate the cares of the world from her back and beat down any Death Eater or douchebag, which is functionally the same thing, that comes her way. I'm gonna name him Muhammad. That way he knows that God doesn't answer to one name, but many. Allah, Krishna, Lono, and sometimes Steve motherfucking Jobs. <laughs> I'm gonna name her Katrina. That way she knows that racism is still alive and well in this country. I'm gonna name him Foucault. That way he knows that everything is structure and discourse, but mostly because that would be Foucaulting awesome. <laughs> But mostly, I just want to name them beautiful. Human beings have a funny way of forgetting that they are beautiful, and I want to remind them every time they write a paper, sign a check, do their taxes, that they are beautiful. I want to remind every person who calls their name that they too are beautiful. But mostly, I want to remind everyone that every name spells beautiful, even the ones that look like Matthew or Boris or Erica. Every name spells B-E-A-utiful. Lately, I've been thinking about names for my non-existent children. And I've decided I'm not going to give them names. I'm that much of a hipster. Instead, I'll hand them a crayon. And whatever they scrawl in their uncertain block print will certainly be more perfect than anything a pretentious young poet with too many metaphors could conceive. That's like, that's definitely one of my favorite poems. I just really enjoy that one since I think that names have a lot of power. One of the other things I've been doing for the way I got into poetry actually was I did speech and debate for, this is my seventh year doing speech and debate. And one of the unique opportunities that I had once was I got to go to the Oregon State Penitentiary to do this debate tournament there. And it was a fascinating opportunity because the thing is that the schools that get debate programs are generally the ones that don't need them. Like the schools that need them are the ones where the youth are underprivileged and don't have access to these types of educational opportunities. But really it ends up just being in like private schools and schools where it just kind of reaffirms the class distinctions. And that just kind of really stood out to me. So I wrote this poem. It's called Privileged Victory. The trophy from the Oregon Penitentiary Debate Tournament says, I speak privileged victory. 
They told us not to wear blue. That color is reserved for the prisoners, people locked up behind the bars of their blue collars. I have never been locked up in my voice, but Robert tells me that here you have a choice to either stay the same or change. And he's only now starting to learn the language of opportunity after a year of white-knuckling iron bars like a steering wheel down the straight and narrow. He did not have access to debate in his high school, where kids are only taught to speak unemployment line, to speak underemployed, to speak temp agency, to speak feeding four kids on minimum wage. Could my single mother have made it on their salary? Would we have survived without my grandparents feeding us from their table? The students in these schools are only fed standardized tests. The inmates tell me over lunch, pizza, that this meal is better than every five-star feast that Mitt Romney will take for granted. They are never given enough. So, when prisoners debate, their voices are ravenous symphonies chewing on the bones of every noun. Every sentence the prisoners say is a feast. I watch my fellow college students who are just visiting like me. We throw around words like choice and action without ever really knowing what that means. One man comes up to me after a round and says I should be a lawyer, that he needs me for his appeal. All of these men are appealing the sentence placed on them for being born without a voice. I have never felt so lucky in my life. These grown men in blue uniforms are the example. My words have never had to claw their way out of my throat. My mother read to me as a child. I learned debate at a private school. English is the language of privilege. Freedom is the language of privilege. Metaphor is a privilege. Poetry is a privilege. Debate is a privilege. But all of these things should be rights. I want to tell him that his voice is just as loud as mine that we both speak the same language. But that would be a lie. Instead, I tell him, your mouth is not a piano. You do not speak the language of black and white. Instead, it is the hammers under every lid, pounding out notes to everyone who underestimated you. Every word I push from my throat sounds like the bell on a slot machine. Our conversation is a carnival. I was born with a ticket. You have had to fashion yours by pushing the boulder of society's expectation one inch at a time, but you will have the voice of a hurricane. Cain. Only winners care about winning. I was born winning. So victory for me is climbing higher. Victory for you is climbing out. Now, I'd never want to have kids, and for some reason, I end up spending a lot of my time working with high school students, and then I also like spend a lot of my time working as a camp counselor for like really little kids, so my disdain for children obviously doesn't affect my life decisions too much. <laughs> this next poem is one I don't get to do very often. It's called Storybook Summers. I'm going to tell you a story. Once upon a time, I worked with six to ten-year-olds. They were bounding nuclear reactors of manic energy running on the radiant fuel rods of narrative. I am the weak one, the camp counselor with balsa wood splinters for legs. I am the idiot who wore shorts, a sign of weakness. Like a bloody nose in a shark tank. 
They swarm into a freeding frenzy, gnashing at my stilts. One of the kids looks up my shorts and tells his friends a story. Mr. Matt has pink underwear. They come to me, their mouths bursting with questions. Mr. Matt, are you a girl? Mr. Matt, do you like boys? Mr. Matt, do you kiss boys? And I want to tell them that we don't wear who we are. We write that. But they would never listen to me. There's only one time they listen to me. And I always want to hide. Because every morning, like cuckoo, cuckoo clockwork, they start chiming, story time, story time, story time. And I don't always feel like pulling stories from within me. Every morning, for 15 minutes, they are silent as I tell them about Jeffrey the Jellyfish's quest to find friends. I tell them about unicorns and young boys that are different. I tell them about princes who are bumbling and swashbuckling princesses. They all have favorites, but I always move to new stories, lay my words at their feet, let them pick at the bones of my narrative and plot. On the last day of camp, they put on a show where the kids pretend to be the counselors. And one of the kids is dressed in a pink shirt pretending to be me. And he says, I'm going to tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a jellyfish, and he didn't want to be a prince or a princess. He wanted to be a unicorn, a pink unicorn. And that was totally okay. This is the story I hear. Once upon a time, they came to me, their mouths begging with questions. This was not idle gossip, but underdeveloped storytelling. They are curious inkjet cartridges trying to print out a narrative that makes sense. I am evolving into a tall tale. These are not hands, they are sentences. These are not feet, they are typewriters. So on the last day of camp, when a kid comes up to me and says, Mr. Matt, I like pink too. It sounds a lot like happily ever after. Now for something completely different. A love poem for John Boehner. I love John Boehner so much, I am going to name my penis John Boehner. It is the Speaker of the House, and everyone mispronounces its name, calling it Boner, when it's actually pronounced Boehner. It's German. I want to date a girl who calls her vagina Ted Cruz. We will be so into handcuffs and restraint, fiscal restraint. We will wear blindfolds and use Adam Smith's favorite position, the invisible hand job. C-SPAN will be our baby-making music. Our safe word will be laissez-faire. We will fear debt of all kinds because debt is the worst kind of STD, spending transmitted disease. We will advocate abstinence-only education because we believe it's the only 100% effective God-sanctioned way to prevent pregnancy. Just ask Mary. <laughs> we will love Walmart because it sells all the things and nothing will arouse us like capitalism and the free market. We will upload videos of Black Friday to Pornhub's orgy section and people Facebooking to the masturbation section. We have so many positions. Anti-choice, anti-equality, pro-corporation, anti-tax, missionary. We can make our own book, the Colterra Sutra. 
We want you to do whatever you want, unless that's raising the debt ceiling. We want to bring that down, even if it brings down the entire world. I guess you could say I'm really good at going down. <laughs> we will hold hands on the trigger of guns because this is the body politics. My tongue's name is Obama. That way when I eat her out, it will be a political protest showing how Obama is pleasuring Ted Cruz. Her throat will be named Mitch McConnell to demonstrate how easily Mitch swallowed Boehner. <laughs> we will call this protest hot and sweaty symbolic gestures. We will show everyone our rope burns and scream, look at how engaged we are. Look at how much we care about politics. We will run naked through the streets and scream, this is what change looks like. <laughs> I study politics. So I know what politics is. Fucking other people is politics. Your body is politics. Pleasure is politics. Miley Cyrus twerking is politics. Love is politics. Kissing is politics. I am politics. No matter what your politics are, the way you fuck is a statement. So fuck in a way that says you will never be able to shut down my body. Yeah, so that was like the literal 180 there. I'm going to do a couple of them. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I just have, like, I got that one out of this writing exercise that we did where, like, we basically just wrote in minutes. We just did ridiculous things together. And I don't know why my mind immediately went to an erotic poem about John Boehner. But that's just where my mind is most of the time, erotic poems about John Boehner. This next poem is called Barbie Girl. The last time a girl told me I was too gay to date her, I flashed back to eighth grade when we made a satire of American Idol. And during a commercial break in the silence, someone advertised a pink dress she wore on Halloween when she was Barbie. They suggested that I wear it, and I agreed because I've always wanted to feel pretty. They brought the dress in and laid it out on the table like a patient awaiting an operation. I became a doctor, carefully lifting the folds of that pink nylon like new skin for a burn victim. I unfurled that shapeless feather over my shapeless stem. My eyelashes were bees' wings pollinating my face, wreathed in marigold roots as I overflowed into song. I sang, I'm a Barbie girl! I was fucking amazing. <laughs> and I got voted off the idol. But I never felt so pretty. Society doesn't want me to feel pretty. People are always telling me to stand straighter, to walk straighter, to be a man. But the three men that my mother married taught me that being a man means running away. Being a man means giving up. Being a man means breaking your promises. People always talk about Barbie's unrealistic expectations. But nobody ever talks about Ken's, about little boys who grew up wanting to hold little girls in their arms, but can't seem to walk straight enough through cookie-cutter dollhouses. My cookie-cutter heart can cut the word love over and over and over again, but it always gets returned with a customer service box marked too gay. I've been called people's gay best friend even after telling them that I am straight. Stereotypically straight men like Ken can wear femininity as farce when I am only allowed to wear it as a judgment. The verdict? 
solitary confinement. I'm sorry that I'm not gay enough for you. I'm sorry that I am not straight enough for you. I'm sorry that I am apologizing because real men don't do that. My gender is not a prepackaged Barbie doll outfit you can buy at Target. Gender is not a target to aim for, so fuck your gender binary. I can't change any more than Barbie can change her plastic parts. We are all tired of our injection molds, so melt us down until we are cassette tapes, like the ones I would listen to when I was a little boy when my grandmother would tell me, Matthew, you would have been a very pretty girl because you have nice eyelashes. So put that tiara on my head, and if they see it as a crown of thorns, they do not deserve to love me because I am a pretty motherfucking princess. <laughs> I have just a few more poems. This next one. Get down on the ground and place your hands where I can see them, the police officer tells me. The smirk on your face is a broken bottle in the bar fight of our relationship, and it's been sinking ever since the day my mother told me to call you dad. Stand up, the police officer tells me. I stand up. Hands glide over me, attempting to discern hidden danger. After this day, TSA pat-downs will always feel like child's play. I'm sorry, but who the fuck calls the cops to tell them that they're afraid of their 13-year-old stepson after beating the kid's mom for two years? Power was always so important to you, yet you let other people fight your battles unless whatever damage you did could be covered up. You loved making purple and blue masterpieces of coagulation across my mother. She took pictures of them and stored them on my computer in a folder labeled just in case. You were Jackson Pollock with your fist, and my mother was your masterwork. You splatter-painted the words, just in case across us, just in case, just in case, just in case of what? Back then, I still believed in God, so I prayed to him to deliver us from evil, but when he never turned up, I just turned up the volume on my favorite song, Adam's song, trying to drown out the percussive soundtrack of the bass-dropping beat of bodies crashing into thin wood walls. The chorus of the song was, I never conquered. I never conquered, I never conquered, I never conquered, and I sang it until it became my mantra. I never conquered, I did nothing the night that you came into my room and said there's a reason you don't have a father, and that reason is your mother. I did nothing every time you yelled at us for having too many books. I was away at a debate camp the night that you choked her in front of my two-year-old brother. I wanted to cut the power lines to my heart. But back then, I believed that God would send me to hell. So I guess that God saved me. But that day, I stand up to God, and I stand up to you. The police check my body for weapons, but they don't tear out my voice pockets, rip apart my vocal cords, and see this time bomb counting down ever since. Three, two, one, fuck you.
I have two more poems for you guys, and I promise that they're going to be a lot less intense. This one is called The Second Coming. James Dean quit college to die in a car accident at 24. His last appearance filmed one week before oncoming traffic crucified him, saw his perfect teeth tell America the importance of automotive safety. The last words he imparted to us humans before he attempted to outrace the inevitable were, the life you save may be mine. They wanted him to say, the life you save may be your own, but James knew as the Ford executioner collided with him not to hit the brakes, to double down on the gas pedal, to push and push into your fate head on, even as the car crumpled into him. He knew that he would be reborn. James Dean is America's biggest porn star. He knew from birth that Brian was too humble a name for a man reborn with purpose. At 18, he quit school learning from previous mistakes to live in a way that his grandmother described as a car wreck. She couldn't see the beauty in the collision of moan, in the collision of two bodies in motion, in the snap of the neck as the moan climbs the throat, the crack of backs as two strangers push into each other with such purpose, knowing that they can never save each other from the dog attacks, the missing planes, the lost children. They settle for entering each other just to see if it is possible to be anything besides alone under the supervision of a camera while I watch them struggle together on screen. I guess I should talk about my books. I have chapbooks, they're $5 each. Every single one is different. Uh, yeah, I kind of spray painted them. I had lots of fun getting really messy, spray painting things. But yeah, come talk to me afterwards if you want. I have chapbooks and I have one of those square things on my phone since we aren't in the Stone Ages anymore. They let us swim in the river at the two-week summer camp for indigenous Hawaiian kids. Like all people with oppression in their backbones, indigenous Hawaiians have summer camps designed to untangle the snarled hair of our culture from missionary positions on us animals, us heathens, us in need of God. Because why have something temporary like a stable cultural self-actualization when you could have a summer camp and what better way to teach us how great our culture was than eight hours of hard labor in a kalo field because what ninth grader doesn't want to do that <laughs> me kalo is the staple food of the indigenous people of Hawaii with leaves green as crisp dollar bills, stalks, skyscrapers straight, and a rich starchy root purpler than mountain's majesty. My ancestors believe that Kalo is our older brother, Haloa, the stillborn first child of the gods. We marrow tomorrow by caring for that which came before. Kalo grows in Aloi. This is where we worked, a muddy field flooded by the river. I have always hated mud. At the age of four, my mother took me to Aloi and tried to get me to step in. I refused to step in because I did not want to get dirty. I am still trying to convince myself that my culture isn't dirty, but my American tongue trips over my native words. At camp, they make us step in. I step in 
those pages that we cut from the history books. I am disgusted at the warmth of its embrace, the way that it says, this is you without your cell phone. This is you without your iPod. This is you without the internet. My ancestors spoke the language before converse. The way their feet pressed into the earth was a conversation. Can we still walk the talk of history through our toes? I try. And the Aina tells me about Aikane, the way that warriors would sleep with their chiefs before battle. It was an act of love. It tells me about Amahu, a third gender category for those who did not want to be male or female, man or woman, and were allowed to be something different because my ancestors understood that we are not born to be anything except for human at camp. They don't teach us any of this. Instead, they teach us how to worship the Christian God in our own tongue, chanting, It's funny how amen sounds the same in every language, as if it were so easily translated. They let us baptize ourselves in the river after we've sufficiently learned how great modernity is. This is all that's left of my culture, a river that has not been swallowed by the public utility. This is how I open up into the ocean and spill into the sea. Thank you so much for having me. Matthew Yasuoka. Superb. I enjoy that I don't know what just happened.